Today, we're going to talk about the Hunter Biden investigation in Congress. A lot going on there. Ricky and I will very much likely debate the meaning of all of that. Uh, we're also going to talk about classical education and a move to replace the SAT, ACT in Florida with a new test that focuses on some old ideas. And then we're going to talk about an anti-porn camp for kids. Is this a good idea? Is it abusive? I don't know, but Ricky's going to tell me. All of this and more on The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. Hello, everybody. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Ricky, this is going to be your favorite episode ever. Hunter Biden teaching kids about old white men and their ideas, anti-porn camp. I mean, how did I agree to all this? <laughs> Hardly. The Hunter Biden thing isn't even my my pet issue, but I felt with all the Trump segments that we've done that it's about time that we at least scratch the surface. Before we're going to get there, we have a lovely voicemail from Billy. Let's go to this voicemail. Hey, this is Ricky. You've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the tone. Hello, this is Billy, and I love your podcast. Love both of the very thoughts that you have. I just listened to the segment on waning border crisis, and I thought that you covered the presidential administrations and sanctuary cities and governors well, but you didn't really talk too much about the real culprit, Congress. I'd love to hear your thoughts about what comprehensive immigration reform could look like and why if illegal immigration is so important, why is Congress so reluctant to do anything about it? Thanks again. I think about this a lot when we talk about uh, reform because there's so much placed on the president and the president has a role, but the Congress actually can do the most here. And we'll link in the show notes this piece by Matthew Iglesias where he talks, I think it's titled Bring Back the Old Immigration Consensus. And he talks about the days of like McCain and Kennedy and everybody coming together to try to fix immigration. And he talks about two different proposals in 2007 and 2013 both of which almost passed Congress. Politics have changed quite a bit, but they include things like changes of rules for who can get a visa, an increase in the total number of people who can immigrate here legally, uh, an investment in border security and interdiction, a program where uh, longtime undocumented immigrants can come out from the shadows, pay back taxes, and become legal. And then he has an extensive section, which is you know my passion here. We've talked about it a lot, which is to fix the asylum system, which is a huge part of the problem we have here. And he basically says, hey, let's come to the table and try to do some horse trading here, uh, you know, trade border security for certain, you know, measures to keep people here, et cetera. Uh, I think that's the right framing of it, but I do think the politics are really dicey on the Hill. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I would also say that we would benefit from making some sort of provision that prevents these enormous legislation packages from being passed, because I think oftentimes immigration policy gets slipped in in like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of regulations. And if we actually forced Congress to sit down at the table and just discuss this singular issue and actually come to something just vaguely resembling common sense rather than just sliding things past each other when they have the majority, that would be helpful as well. Um, the only place that I really have even the vaguest hope of that transpiring is in the common sense caucus and the kind of more centrists in in Congress. But yeah, I would agree that the 
that Congress is who can do something, but the gridlock is enormously frustrating. But that also does place a larger impetus on the president and and the executive branch to message as effectively as possible, given the fact that the gridlock is an issue. Well, okay. Speaking of the president, Ricky, you have been asking for a Hunter Biden extravaganza. Indeed. I'm excited for this. Where should we start? Well, I think we should start with this recent testimony from Devin Archer, who's a former business partner um, at Burisma Holdings, a Ukrainian energy company in Ukraine with um, Hunter Biden. Both of them are on the board there. And he testified before the GOP House Oversight and Accountability Committee. And that transcript came out recently, which included a lot of smoking guns that are kind of closer and closer to the president himself. Um, I think the the major part of this debate here is it's pretty clear that Hunter Biden, who was battling addiction, who seemed deeply unwell based on what was in his hard drive, was raking in millions and millions of dollars from foreign entities pretty clearly because of his last name. Um, I don't think that there's any arguing that. And the question now is, did Joe Biden know about this? Did Joe Biden play a role in this? And this Devin Archer testimony seems to suggest yes. Whereas in the past, you know, there were emails that alluded to the big guy and presumably that would be Joe Biden. But Devin Archer within this testimony says that Joe had been put on the phone with Hunter's business partners, perhaps 20 times, often on speakerphone, discussing completely separate issues like how's the weather in Ukraine or how's the fishing going or like kind of fluff conversation, which the he agrees that this is... Which is so damning. <laughs> well, okay. So, I, I have okay, let me finish. Let me finish. He agrees to the he agrees to the the characterization that this is selling the illusion of access to his father. Obviously, Hunter and Joe are wise enough to not get on the phone on speakerphone and say, "Oh, how's that Ukrainian energy company doing? And how are your millions of dollars treating you? And how are you like?" They're not going to allow these foreign business entities to hear the vice president of the United States discussing arguably corrupt business dealings. However, they are going to take note of the fact that Hunter can just dial up dad and and shoot the shit and dad's cooperative. And I mean, Ravi, when you have business dinners, do you put your, if your dad calls you, do you put him on speakerphone and just say, Hey everyone, let's just, let's just be quiet and let's talk about the weather with my father for a minute. So, you know, I'll give you an example and then I'll read from the testimony because I think it's fairly clear. Uh, I was playing basketball with an employee of the Obama Foundation two years ago, and Obama called him up about something, and he threw Obama on the like speakerphone, and we just talked, right? And I was just like, "Oh, that was Is cool." Obama that was his a great dad? Moment. Do you think Obama's? But I'm saying, like, and that's. Do you that's think an Obama's daughters would do that? Really? That's different. So you're Obama's daughter, and you're hanging out, and your dad calls you, and you're going to put him on speakerphone and say, "Hey, here's my cool president, Dad." Hold on, Ukrainian it's the op- it goes the people. other way of what you're saying. Like, if it's his son, he's more likely to do it. And this is an indictment of Hunter Biden. No, your not friend Joe is Biden. flexing on me, you, saying, "Here's me, here's the president," which is super that's cool. What I'm saying is, versus if it's but, your parent, uh, you would be more Ricky, private. Ricky, give me give me give me ten se- give me at least ten seconds okay, on I'll this. Shut up okay, now. Uh, so first of all, I don't know what that whole like 
it goes the opposite of what you're saying. Like Hunter Biden is being an ass and trying to sell access. Archer said that. He says, quote, it's clear that he's not bringing his dad, but he's saying, you know, I'm going to get credit for it. And we're talking about, you know, Biden takes these trips and Hunter tries to pretend he has some role in arranging these trips where there's just official government business. Uh, he goes, uh, this is Archer's testimony, quote, I have no basis to know if he altered policy to benefit his son. I have no knowledge. Uh, he describes Hunter Biden being around his dad, throwing his dad on speakerphone, not even being clear his dad even knows who he's talking about or about what. They never get into any business de uh, details. So there is no smoking gun here. And I would say that this- Well, he was Archer at dinners with them as well. He did attend dinners with his business partners. But I, I, I seem to remember from the, the whole Russia hoax stuff that just merely being in a room with somebody is not evidence of a conspiracy, right? That was the whole thing about that all the Biden- That is prime whataboutism because we're talking about it in line with all these other things that are going on as well. Joe Biden has meant, I, met, I would like to think, hundreds of thousands of people, right? And I'm one of these people who, when I see, for instance, a picture of Trump with Epstein- there's people on the left who are like, oh my God, Trump is partying with Epstein. I'm like, well, yeah, okay. Like they live down the street from each other. Trump has, there's photos of Trump with everybody. Like I'm sure Trump is at dinner with millions of people. To me, that's not evidence of a conspiracy. And evidence of a conspiracy is evidence of a conspiracy. Now, for me, I'll get to it. There is some, some smoke and gun like evidence here that has come out of this Ukraine investigation, but I actually think it proves the opposite of what I think a lot of people on the right want. But I would say that this Archer testimony, if we want to focus on that, has actually been more damning to the right than of the left. And I'll point to the New York Post, which had a headline a couple of days ago, which said, DOJ tries to jail key Hunter Biden witness on the eve of congressional testimony. Now I'm looking at this and I'm like, oh my God, they're trying to jail a witness? Now it turns out that this piece, which was all about how the DOJ was trying to silence a witness, was completely wrong. Right. So Archer was convicted in 2018 in the Southern District of New York in connection with fraudulent scheme. You know, this was about a 60 million dollar scheme on tribal bonds. He was sentenced to a year and a day in prison last year. And the Second Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed the conviction. The next step was for Archer to serve his time. And the DOJ like, confirmed to The New York Post and others after this piece that, hey, they actually, not only did they agree to the sentencing way before any of this stuff was going on, but they actually agreed to move it back so that he could testify. And then he testifies that Joe Biden has no knowledge, that he has no knowledge that Joe Biden altered policy to benefit his son, or that Joe Biden didn't discuss any business dealings with these people. So I'm like, all right, no smoking gun, completely fraudulent headline from the New York Post. And I'm like, all right, like this is starting to look worse for the right wing than the left wing. I just don't agree that there's nothing worth investigating in the fact that he's on speakerphone with strangers who, I mean, the the concept that Biden has no knowledge about what his son is doing is so far beyond me. There are other, there are tons of other things coming up in this investigation as well, including a message that he sent on WhatsApp to Henry Zhao, who's the CEO of a Chinese asset management firm, Harvest Fund, where he said- And who's the he here? Um, Hunter. Hunter's messaging with the CEO who presumably is, is sending him payment. And he says to his, his, he says, it's unclear why the quote commitment has not been unfilled or has not been fulfilled. And he says, I'm sitting with my father right now, which could completely be him bluffing. 
But he says, I will make certain that between the man sitting next to me and every person he knows and my ability to, to forever hold a grudge, that you will not regret following my direction. The payment ended up coming through. And then, so, you know, he could be bluffing. He could be saying, oh, my dad's here. He's sitting right next to me and um, pay me now because my dad's really influential. But there are photos from that exact day of him in his father's driveway in his father's old vintage car with two women in bikinis that are geotagged to his father's residence in Delaware where his dad was that day. There's also a text that he sent to his daughter about how like one day she, or at least she doesn't have to hold the whole family together and he's paying his dad's bills, which, you know, these are all vague illusions, but presumably somebody who is dealing on their family's name would be pretty careful to make vague illusions and and Hunter is pretty sloppy. And I think that it's worth looking back at the history of how the how Biden has positioned himself in saying that he has nothing to do with this. Yeah. So before we do that, let me say a couple of things. Number one is we have long known that Hunter Biden has made lots of claims about his father. What hasn't been proven is that Joe Biden had anything to do with these. And I'll quote Paul Gosar, the Republican from Arizona, a few weeks ago. He said, quote, the only missing thing is direct evidence that Joe Biden knew and participated in these bribery schemes. Yeah, that's a pretty big missing thing because Hunter Biden, I don't care what happens to Hunter Biden, lock him up, throw away the key, whatever he does. I agree that that's a big missing thing. I'm not saying we should jail Joe Biden tomorrow. I'm saying this is worth looking into. And kids peddling influence for their parents is a long and dumb and corrupt practice. You know, Jared Kushner got $2 billion from the Saudis. I'm not trying to throw him in prison over it. If he committed a crime, he should go to prison for it. I have no reason to think he ever did, right? And if Hunter Biden committed a crime, which has not been proven yet uh, as it relates to this Chinese stuff, uh, then he should go to prison. There have been other crimes that he has been very credibly accused of, and he's very close to a plea deal, it seems. Uh, that will probably go to the court at some point in the next couple of months. Uh, and that's what we've gotten out of this. Now, the most credible crime to come out of this Hunter Biden stuff actually is the crime that Donald Trump committed that he got impeached Can over. I just say one thing on the Kushner thing before we move off it? One thing. We did a whole segment about the Kushner thing because that was worth talking about. And this is worth talking about too. My point being, it's worth discussing Corruption is corruption, and it's worth discussing, especially when it implicates the president. It's just, I'm not saying we're going to throw Joe Biden in jail. I'm not saying that we're going to impeach him. I'm not saying that he's privy to any of this. I'm just saying that there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that's worth talking about. Yeah, for sure. And I think this is a, a, an Alvin Bragg moment. Whereas when I when he talked about Alvin Bragg and his charges, I thought it was a test for the left. Like, were they going to lose their minds and steamroll process because they hated somebody and wanted to make a political stunt? And unfortunately, too many people on the left did that. To me, this is a test for the right. And at every step of the way, too many prominent figures on the right have shown that they're out for blood politically. And this is about creating a false equivalency and muddying up the president when there is no evidence. This has been going on forever. I want to remind people, this has been going on deep into the Trump presidency. Trump was impeached over this. And I want to remind people of what that impeachment was about. Trump asked Zelensky to, quote, do us a favor by investigating the Bidens. He withheld military aid to Ukraine and Zelensky... And until Zelensky agreed to investigate the Bidens, he um, pressured Zelensky to meet with his personal attorney, which in that case was Rudy Giuliani, to lead up, who was leading the efforts to investigate the Bidens. He obstructed Congress by refusing to cooperate with the impeachment inquiry. And not only that, so he was impeached by the House of Representatives, and he got the Republican votes for that 
uh, conviction from Richard Burr of North Carolina, Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, Ben Sass, and Pat Toomey. Some of these are not left-wing figures who were convinced that Trump committed a crime um, and a, a, a offense that was unworthy of the office that made him unfit to be president of the United States. That is the president, the former president. Like that was actual evidence that got Republican votes in addition to every single Democrat to go against him. And we're still here years later after all of this, trying to bully foreign governments, you know, bully the Department of Justice, congressional hearings, overstep the office of the inspector general. And what do we have? We have a misdemeanor tax charge, which maybe gets to a felony tax charge, which we could talk about, and a gun charge by a crack addict. And I'm like, all right, time to shut this thing down. So you're just going to shut it down. It's not worth investigating. There's not there's nothing interesting about the fact that Biden has openly said that he threatened to withhold one billion dollars of aid to Ukraine unless they fire their Ukrainian prosecutor, General Shokin, who at that very time was a threat to Burisma Holdings and was seizing the assets of its owner and then said, the son of a bitch, he got fired at, at a at a dinner meeting later. You know, he's like these are these are reasonable. That's not questions. what they're investigating. But that's not well, what they're no, investigating. That was they're that investigating a whole to, host of so so to be clear, first of all, there's an office of the inspector general. It everything depends on what the this is the ultimate political whack-a-mole game. Every time something's proven false another thing comes up. What's proven false? The whole thing about Biden and Shokin, people can Google it. That was litigated during the impeachment. And you could listen to people like Sass himself, like Susan Collins. They're on record talking about this. Now, none of that is new. None of that is new. Now, if you go to what is new, these things by the day are coming out and they're being disproven. A good example, and I think the most credible thing that ever came out of this so far is these IRS whistleblowers, right? Now, I want to say that they come on the heels of a alleged Chinese spy who was the previous whistleblower, right? So like every time something comes up, something weird happens with it, right? So you have these two IRS whistleblowers, right? Now, I think they have really important things to say about the process. And Isaac Saul wrote some really good pieces of Tangle saying, hey, there's some things that we should listen to. The lead whistleblower is this guy named Gary Shapley. And there's another whistleblower named Joseph Ziegler. And uh, they're saying that, hey, we didn't follow the proper process here. Uh, and they also said that um, they made claims that Weiss, by the way, I want to remind the audience that the person in charge of this investigation was a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney who has been given the independence to see through this investigation. So you'd have to really believe in some wild conspiracy theories to think that he's covering up for Biden or using kid gloves or whatever. But Ziegler and Shapley, who are whistleblowers, alleged that Weiss sought special counsel approval and approval to file charges in D.C. This was one of their main claims. And it was a big claim because it alleged that, hey, this is not actually an independent person. Everybody went wild over this, right? And then Weiss just very delicately wrote a letter to Congress saying, nope, actually, all of that's false. I didn't seek special, seek special counsel approval, but I did hear that if I did want special counsel approval, I would receive it. And the same is true if I wanted to file charges in different jurisdictions. So basically explicitly saying the opposite of what they're saying. And these same whistleblowers also said, hey, we disagreed with these charges, uh, yada, yada. And then they were asked under oath, well, how often do um, your sort of superiors go against your wishes? Shapley said... 90% of the time, they go against my recommendations. So what you have is a aggressive investigators, very credible investigators who are want 
like more aggressive charges against people. And I'm like, yeah, like it's not some kind of grand Illuminati conspiracy. This is just what happens in government. Yeah, I'm not citing these specific allegations even in, in my frustration on this. But let's let's just listen to how Biden has postured himself in in this entire situation. Have you ever spoken to your son about his overseas business dealings? I've never spoken to my son about his overseas business dealings. What's your understanding of what your son was doing for an extraordinary amount of money? I don't know what he was doing. I know he was on the board. I found out he was on the board after he was on the board. And that was it. And there's nobody. Well, you've had a lot of time. Isn't this something you want to get to the bottom of? No, because I trust my son. I have not taken a penny from any foreign source ever in my life. We learned that this president paid 50 times the tax in China, has a secret bank account with China, does business in China, and in fact is talking about me taking money. I have not taken a single penny from any country whatsoever, ever. My son has not made money in terms of this thing about, uh, what are you talking about, China. I have not had, the only guy made money from China is this guy. He's the only one. Nobody else has made money from China. Okay, so Hunter Biden made $4.7 million in a year from CEFC China, according to an NBC report, which is notable. But, and I don't think that there's yet any credible proof that Biden himself profited from this. However, I would just posit that if I were the vice president of the United States and my son, who I'm very involved with, who I know is dealing with severe drug addiction, who is totally spiraling out of control, I find out that he's on the board of a energy company with absolutely no qualifications in a country over which I have control over the American foreign policy, I would say to myself, hmm, maybe I don't trust my son. Maybe this doesn't feel like this is above water. And maybe I should make sure that he gets off that fucking board. If I were concerned about where is the $200,000 a month budget coming from, how did his firm take $11 million from 2013 to 2018? If I'm so intimately involved with my son, as I do believe that Joe Biden is as a father, I'm not saying that as a critique, then I would be concerned that my son who's spiraling out of control is somehow making millions of dollars and is somehow making millions of dollars in very important countries as a board member with my last name. And I would say enough of that. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, that certainly is what I would do. I don't have a child, but that's certainly what I would do. And to me, that is the the water's edge of the indictment of Biden I found in all of this, which is that he is not aggressive enough with his son, who is a political risk and a moral risk to him, should have been more aggressive with him, should have pushed him to do more and didn't. That's to me what the indictment is. Now, do I think the American people are going to care about that? I don't think so. You know, I don't think because what are they going to compare it to? They're running against a guy whose son-in-law is selling EB-5 visas to China. By the way, no one's running against anyone right now. No one's won primaries. I mean, this is no, but we're talking about the next election. But, you know, I also would just like to add to that. If I were Joe Biden and that same son said to me, Hey, dad, come to a dinner with with a Burisma Holdings board member 
Or, hey, dad, I'm going to call you on speakerphone in front of all these people who I have business dealings with at a dinner party on speaker and have some weird, fluffy conversation with you. Just put up with it. I would say no, because that's terrible form. I would say no. First of all, I agree. I, I don't know what he knew about who he was talking to when. Like that has never been established. And I'm also supposed to alternatively believe that this guy is senile and can't do his job, but he's like, knows everything happening at all times. Well, is he being manipulated by his son potentially? Yes. I think that, I think that has been established. Maybe he is senile. Maybe that, (laughs) maybe that all falls together a little bit, but. I think he's being manipulated by his son, not because he's senile, but because he trusts his son and he loves his kid. He lost his other son years before. He's the kind of family man to me, it's not because he's old. It's because he's a loving father. Well, you just said that you're supposed to be believing that he's senile. I'm just saying that would that would make sense, actually, that a senile person would be pulled into that. But no matter what, you trust your son in that circumstance. That trust, that's, that's naive. There's no trust around that. We're wading into family matters that bleed into bad judgment, and that is it. And it is relevant. The guy ran against Trump last time. As we've well established, Trump is almost certain to get the nomination again. And by these standards, this is why I think this is a political nothing, is Jared Kushner took billions of dollars from the Saudis and has sold EB-5 visas to the Chinese to do his construction projects, among many, many other things. Never mind all the things that- Which I think is enormously corrupt. Of a lot of the things that Biden said were definitely proven false, including that his son received money. Uh, the things that are true is all the stuff we said about Trump. <laughs> so it's like, are people going to hold his feet to the fire on that? No. Now, there is a separate thing going on here, which is this false equivalency project when it comes to all of the many charges that Trump has had. We could put the brag stuff aside because I think that's nonsense. But this is not both sidesism when every single right-wing person I have heard talk about this. The next sentence that comes out of their mouth, including McCarthy himself, is like, hey, let me pivot to Hunter Biden every time that Trump comes up. Have you heard me do that? No, but a lot of these people, including Ben Shapiro, Ben Shapiro and the very Congress that we're talking about, right? This is the very Congress who's investigating, which gets to the point about the OIG being the right person. By the way, the the OIG who is in place right now, the Inspector General in the Department of Justice is a Senate-confirmed person who has been in their position since 2012, so has been in Republican and Democratic administrations. This is the person who's equipped to investigate Department of Justice wrongdoing. And every single cabinet position has one of these that are Senate confirmed. And that's the proper process, not Marjorie Taylor Greene showing, you know, this is, (laughs) they call it the committee to inspect uh, Hunter's genitals. Like that, this is, this is what the uh, Congress is doing right now. Let's play this clip of Marjorie Taylor Greene in this hearing. Before we begin, I would like to let the committee and everyone watching at home that parental discretion is advised. I would like to present this to the committee. This is showing Hunter Biden paying for a victim's United flight from L.A. to Dulles. This was a, I believe this is a violation of the Mann Act. This is Hunter Biden's, this is his proof that he bought the ticket. He bought it for this woman right here. He was purchasing her a plane ticket for sex and traveling across state lines. Do you believe that to be a violation of the Mann Act, Mr. Ziegler? Hunter Biden paid for this woman to do this with him, to travel across state lines 
from California to Washington, D.C. on June 15th. This is a violation of the Mann Act. This was prostitution. Mr. Shapley, you, you started an investigation into Hunter Biden, codenamed Sportsman, which opened in November of 2018. It, it was an offshoot of an investigation the IRS was conducting into a foreign-based amateur online pornography platform. Um, this this is evidence uh, of of Hunter Biden making sex. Excuse me, this is my time. Making pornography. Should we be displaying this, Mr. Chairman? Get the committee. Get a lady's time's expired. This is what we're doing, and she was allotted extra time to finish this point, where she's showing a naked picture of Hunter Biden. I'm like, all right, this is our taxpayer dollars at work. Come on. Yeah, that's not what I'm endorsing, and in fact, I've been uncomfortable with some of the personal contents on Hunter's laptop that are public. I mean, I, I'm not harping on his, on his drug use or on other criminal activities that are evidenced in that hard drive, because I think that some of those are personal and not reflective of, or not within the public interest beyond the fact that this is somebody who's clearly spiraling out of control at the very point in time where For some reason, we're supposed to believe that he's making $83,000 a month in consulting fees from Burisma Holdings in good faith when this is all happening. That's where I think that his personal issues are at issue. I would, I do not agree with the Marjorie Taylor Greene showing something like that. Like I just, that's not my style. That's not why I'm calling attention to this. And I would just like to respond to your point before about us wading into family matters, which it's only relevant because this entire allegation is based on the fact that this is precisely a family matter, that this is precisely because the son of the most powerful person arguably in the country was and potentially still could be profiting off of his family name and his last name and his connection to his father and his proximity to his father. And therefore, that's the only reason why I think it's appropriate to talk about certain aspects of their personal family dynamic because the American country and taxpayers and our our influence and our foreign policy are potentially implicated here. And I think that these are questions worth asking. And I think also there's a world in which you can say that there's a ton of corruption in our government, that Trump's not totally above water, that Biden's not totally above water, that maybe we have two options that both of whom the majority of the American people don't want to see run for re-election at 60% Trump and 70% Biden. And maybe there's not, it's not about a false equivalency. Maybe we can just, it's not about, is Trump worse? Is Biden worse? It's like, yeah, we have issues in our government and maybe we need some fresh blood and not somebody who's a career politician who's been there since his 30s, who's going to be like 86 at the end of the- But I. There are a couple of false equivalencies embedded in what you just said. First of all, I don't think they're equally to blame on anything, uh, including this. Uh, I also think like just asking questions is a rhetorical trick. There have been questions asked. A lot of them have been answered and they will continue to be answered over time. The difference, we, we brought up this the, the Kushner thing. We, we talked about that a long time ago. It came and went. If Congress, the Department of Justice, and everything else was weaponized, including the DNC and everything, to continually spend millions of taxpayer dollars to ask questions about Jared Kushner and the Saudis and the EB-5 visas, and we were bombarded with it constantly, and it was used as an excuse-making factory for everything the Democrats ever did, then I would have a problem with it. And I want to reiterate, the only president who has been credibly accused of a crime as it relates to Hunter Biden is Donald Trump, 
who was impeached over it and received a lot or a few Senate votes from very right-wing Republicans. Uh, And it was the kind of thing that is the most egregious act a president can do, which is he's leveraging his position to bully a foreign adversary who wound up being invaded not too long after that to investigate his domestic political enemy. It is totally relevant to this because if that's what Donald Trump was willing to do to try to make these charges stick against Joe Biden, then his acolytes they're willing to use whatever process they can, right? They're willing to use their Senate, their their committees in the House. They're willing to use any positions they have in government. They're obviously willing to use their media companies to indict Joe Biden by any means necessary. And that's what I've been seeing here. One last thing on the just asking questions front. I think we should just learn from history a little bit about where the lines of facts and fiction lie on this story specifically and where denial has turned out to actually be vindicated. And I would just say, look back to when the New York Post was locked out of its Twitter account, where users were blocked from sharing articles that were completely credible about Hunter's laptop, where you were restricted from sharing it on Facebook, where it wasn't even covered on most of cable news, where it was dismissed as false and Russian disinformation. And maybe just it's worth keeping an open mind that there might be some credible revelations to come in spite of what certain media outlets say is fact and fiction and that it might just be worth asking the question. I believe it's worth asking the question. Let's just do it forever. Let's let's spend a let's spend a trillion okay. dollars and on this. Because the because because Twitter I've been was avoiding wrong. the whataboutism on the superfluous brag indictments and stuff with the Trump stuff. Because it, I don't think it's a great thing that we're we're just going after our political enemies ad nauseum for whatever dirt we can dig up on them. I think that that's a precedent that was set in the Trump presidency because he's so out there and understandably so. I think this is exhausting. I think this is not sustainable. I think that this is potentially an endless can of worms that we've opened. And I, I'm concerned for for the future of of American democracy where we have a two-party system that's incentivizing each side to just go after and impeach presidents that are in office. I am I share your concern that we shouldn't be asking questions forever. However, I think that there are meaningful revelations that have been dug up here. And I would just say it's notable that after Joe is saying, I haven't discussed this with my son, period, whatsoever on the campaign trail. Now the new line from the White House from Corrine Jean-Pierre is the president was never in business with his son. Classic learning test. So uh, in Florida, uh, they have, uh, in May, uh, they passed legislation allowing high school students to qualify for these bright future learning scholarships, which are state-funded college education scholarships, by submitting scores from what's called the classic classical learning test, uh, and we're able to use that instead of the ACT. And now they're on the cusp of allowing this classical learning test to be used instead of the SAT, ACT for all public colleges in Florida. And this has touched off a debate over whether this is indoctrination or whether this is just smart education policy, whether it's just a nothing burger, like, you know, pedagogical decision. This is, I think, a rather confusing thing to try to get to the bottom of. Um, Just for background, uh, there's a great piece in the 74 by Kevin Mankin, which I think is by far the most detailed thing I've found out there and goes through the sort of history of the classical education model, which is 
is related, but should be not confused with classics or classical humanities. It focuses on core values and the centrality of Western tradition. And it's got its roots in thinkers like Plato and Aristotle, but is more complex than that. And I think it it alternately is a history, but also a way of thinking using certain classical ways of reasoning. Yeah, I don't know, Ricky. I, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what's going on here. And I, I've come out with more questions than I've answers. Yeah, I think, I mean, I've, I take exception to a lot of the things that have been happening in Florida in terms of education. I think given the backdrop of that, this turned into a moral panic in a sense of like, oh, this is centering on whiteness and Hillsdale College is behind it. And so therefore it must fit into this grand conspiracy. I'm not seeing that at all in this. Honestly, I think the classical education title does evoke that image of like potentially a more Eurocentric vision, but that is just sort of like the world that we subscribe to. It seems to me the more that I've I've read a bunch of like student things and and comparing back and forth, a few logistical things that are beneficial. It's shorter, it's online, and you get your results faster. So that's very helpful for for students who might have issues accessing SAT or taking an entire day out of their their schedule in order to do it. But the differences in terms of the actual content is seems to be pretty slight. It still has the verbal reasoning, grammar and writing and quantitative reasoning. Um, in the reading sections, which like when you take the SAT, it's like some bizarre out of context story about how someone felt about their first day of school or something that you'll just throw away versus this is this is actual literature. It doesn't require that you read the book that it's from. It's um, the passages are chosen in isolation. So everything that you need is there. Um, for example, like Anne Bronte is is a passage that they used recently, um, which I think is is actually more interesting than have a kid read some stupid thing that has no meaning. Um, also on the math front, it's the math is more logic oriented rather than like, were you trained in the specific pre-calc sort of concept or whatever that you needed to kind of memorize or, or, or it's, it's less rote. It's more like akin to, to me, this feels like the mini LSAT, which is something that I've suggested would actually be a good thing for um, standardized testing going into colleges because it's testing how your brain works and, and how your reasoning works and your logic rather than the quality of your school or whether you took pre-calc in freshman year and totally forgot everything or whether you're going to take it in senior year and you don't have the benefit. So I don't have an issue with this unless there's something glaring that's missing in all the reporting about it. And one other thing I like is that the it, you can actually score higher than like, for example, the, the ACT goes up to 36 and there's like probably like you could get, I'm just going to guess here, like five to seven questions margin of error wrong and still get a 36 versus this one you can actually score higher. So if you're that much more excellent above the threshold, then you get celebrated for that. So I'm not seeing the problems. I don't really have a problem with this particular test. I have the problem with all the entropy that's happening on the testing front for colleges generally, this being a very small part of it, meaning like the movement to get rid of standardized tests at colleges, which is mostly a left-wing phenomenon, the movement to change the tests, which is a whole separate conversation, um, the very tests themselves. Uh, there is a, I would say, a spurious claim that the SAT is left-wing, like uh, Jeremy Wayne Tate, 
who's a big, uh, you know, vocal proponent of this classical test, you know, cites for for the the leftward drift of the SAT, he cites a Bernie Sanders op-ed that showed up in the 2019 SAT. And I was like, whoa, that sounds inappropriate. So I looked it up. It's about mail delivery on Saturdays. <laughs> it's like a US senator talking about mail delivery. Yeah, like, yeah, okay, like, sure. Like, don't put Bernie Sanders in there if it's going to, like, piss people off. But, like, it, it doesn't seem to be, like, a big deal one way or the other. So I feel like it was a disingenuous anecdote. My sense of the SAT is it's pretty standard. Now, I would want one test, and one of the reasons why I want one test for everybody to take is it gives us great data, and that data helps us do things like sue Harvard for discriminating against Asian Americans. It also gives kids a predictable path to go to schools, right? So they don't have to take four different tests to qualify for schools. They can just take one, and test preparation can get better, et cetera. Now, do I think this is like going to be the thing that tips it over the edge. No, but it's just part of a, a, a larger movement where different, you know, sort of political corners, uh, you know, are kind of making their own version of government. And, and the best version of this is federalism and, you know, a thousand points of light. But I think even I, you know, a big proponent of federalism have a limit. And my limit has been reached when it comes to standardized testing here, which is like on the college front, let's just... God's sakes, just pick one thing that every college does. They can all have all the 99 other things they want to do, but let's just do one thing. Everybody does it so we can all have that data and kids can have one thing they can predict in the process across schools. That's the one thing I ask. Well, then do you want to pick the SAT or the ACT? Yeah, I mean, I already think that, and as somebody who ran preparation for these things it was already it, it was already a lot to prepare kids for the SAT and ACT together it actually creates all sorts of issues and which I won't go into but it they're obvious right it's like it's like trying to teach kids martial arts like two different martial arts at the same time you know they're two different tests and so and then you got to teach them everything else that's more important than the SAT ACT all their subject matters right and if you're dealing with kids who are disadvantaged you really want them to overperform in the SAT ACT because that's like an objective measure they could use to outperform a kid who's in a fancy school. Now, on it, when it comes to this like classical stuff, to me, this feels like an SAT2 type of situation, like a niche educational model. The test itself seems more general, but the, the curriculum, which is really where a lot of this debate is centered, it's like a niche educational model. And I think like for certain people who want that, they should choose that. I think we get into trouble when it starts to become like, the mainstream state-sponsored thing. Because when I talk to people like Corey DeAngelis and the proponents of school choice, which is very much wrapped in on this, which the Kevin Mankin piece does a really good job of, um, they're saying like, hey, like let parents choose the school that fits their values. And once, which I agree, like by and large, like we should allow a lot of different school models for parents to pick from that fit their values. That's contradicted in part by a very heavy hand of the state starting to push these types of uh, curriculum choices, which this individual decision doesn't do, but other things DeSantis is starting to do start to make me wonder, which we can get to. Wait, what aspect is niche? The passage choice? No, no, no. The classical education model itself. Like the fact that like we're grounding it in Plato, Aristotle, classical thinking. And niche isn't bad. Like they're a niche. Like whatever school I would start next would would be a niche approach to education. I don't mean niche to mean trivial. I mean, it is a decision that shouldn't be mandated to a lot of people, right? Like, I think it's a decision for a school to make, not a decision for the state to make. And again, I'm, this isn't the decision that pushes all schools to do it. 
but it does move in that direction. And for me, there are other things DeSantis has done over the past few weeks that are in line with this, that in some ways make it understandable that people are overreacting a certain way to everything he does. I think the biggest one was that they, and I, I talked about this on Citizen Stewart this week, that they approved the PragerU curriculum for kids for K to 12. Now, approving it doesn't mean mandating it for everybody, but it is a rather strange decision coming from somebody who's talked about uh, propagandizing kids, et cetera. Dennis Prager has himself explicitly acknowledged that he's in the propaganda business. And I went through it in detail, all of his different quotes, and I went through the curriculum on Citizen Stewart this week. People can go listen to it. That is not a curriculum that should be blessed by somebody who's uh, interested in stopping indoctrination of kids and somebody who's done some of the moves DeSantis does. And so that larger context makes me think that this whole effort on curriculum changes in Florida might be suspect. I am not at all prepared to respond to the Breaker You thing. So um, I'll let that one sit there. But I would say, though, I don't think there's anything niche about the way that classical education is applied here because it's not being applied in any way or not testing any learning beyond what the SAT or ACT does. It's just utilizing classical text in order to test the same body of knowledge. I don't really see that as very controversial. I would also say I agree that I'd rather there just be one test, but considering we already have the SAT and the ACT and a lot of the critics of standardized testing in general make cases that it's it's testing knowledge that you have to get out of a good school or it's forcing kids to take a Saturday out of their life if they can't afford to do it, or it's it's prohibitive this, that, or whatever way, which I think is mostly bunk, except for probably some fringe cases. But I think this just adding another option and another avenue towards testing and going more test flexible than test optional is probably a pretty good way to be able to plug a lot of those holes and say, hey, there's this test that you can take online in like two hours and you get your results within like two weeks. Then you know, you're you're fighting back against some of the anti-standardized test conversation in general. And also on their website, they do have, um, I mean, I can't independently validate this, but they do have a scoring rubric that is pretty clear about if you get this score, this is the equivalent of a 1500 or a 34 or whatever it might be. So it's it's not totally opaque. It's pretty obvious. Yeah, I do think that scoring rubric is is no good. Uh, it's a whole different pedagogical discussion, but I, I do think equating the two is a little bit dicey because they're not the same test. They should treat them separately, but that's a that's a different discussion. My 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 bottom line is I agree with you by and large. I think this is this is not the pitch I would swing at. Like I, I we've talked about a lot of DeSantis education policy. I think he has shown himself to be. I want to put this charitably. Um, a political operative in the educational system. An we wouldn't be alone in that, yeah. but he, an activist. And, and I, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time talking to right-wing figures on education stuff, and we agree on a lot. But where I, I have issues is the larger political project that involves like the stuff like the PragerU or the changes to the Black History, some of the changes to the Black History Standards that he's been criticized for and stuff like that. That I'm like, we're starting to get beyond sensible like changes to stuff and more politics. This is not the thing I would fight on. Just like when we talked about the changes to the K to 12 standardized testing, which kind of came and went and hasn't become much of a controversy when he got rid of the end of year tests and broke them into smaller tests. There basically has been almost no national follow-up on that. 
This to me will be kind of like that as long as the test providers, the curriculum providers and all of that kind of stay apolitical or be apolitical. I don't know how much they've stayed apolitical or not. Um, and there was actually the, the same guy that I quoted, Jeremy Wayne Tate, has basically said as much. He said, quote, as a conservative, I don't want to see this movement politically hijacked, but there are aspects of it that are threatening to the progressive establishment, he says. So he acknowledges that there are things here, and I agree with him, that like centering a curriculum on the ideas of Western civilization is going to agitate the same kind of people who want to change the names of school buildings in San Francisco, et cetera. But when you're thinking about the moderate, just common sense, Democrat, Republican, independent, who just wants their kids to learn and thrive in society, as long as you stay out of the politics and stay out of the, the sort of reactionary sort of dog whistle stuff, uh, and you actually try to just make this a good curriculum for kids, there's no reason why this shouldn't just be implemented and work fine. I don't think it needs to be a big fight about it. And, you know, only time will tell. Ricky, I, I, I went so down the rabbit hole of this Hunter Biden stuff that I haven't fully grasped this story in recent about this camp for kids. So please enlighten us. Yeah, this is from Hallie Lieberman um, in Reason Magazine, which it's an interesting article considering I've been on kind of the anti-porn tirade myself. But I think this is a probably more unfortunate iteration of a solution to an issue that I think exists. This is a camp called Star Guides Wilderness Therapy for children with porn addiction, with other sexual dysfunction issues. But it's the fact that it's in Utah, I think, makes it potentially a little more religiously tinged. There's an example that they they go through in this article. Cameron, who um, is a gay male whose parents found out and disapproved pretty vigorously, he says. Um, And they ultimately found porn on his phone and began locking him in his room at night, forcing him to pee in Gatorade bottles because they didn't want him to access his phone. And he ended up getting into a relationship with his father's coworker who his father confided in about his son's sexuality. And then his parents said, okay, enough, you're going to this camp. And it was founded in 2013. But I think the anti-porn is the position that they outwardly have. And there are concerns that this is echoing conversion therapy and that kids like Cameron, who maybe porn isn't the root of the issue, but their parents taking issue with their sexuality are sending them to this camp and that it's being misappropriated effectively. But it calls itself the country's premier wilderness treatment program for teens with technology, pornography, and sexual addictions flatter of which is pretty broad. But the concept is an unplugged environment to reset and rebalance 40 kids at a time. But there's some pretty salacious claims on their website, including saying that porn can lead to STDs because of its leading to sexual contact, um, ultimately potentially molestation, pedophilia, sexting, experimentation with siblings, then also some more religious stuff devaluation of monogamy, marriage, and child rearing. Not that I disagree with that, but they're saying it's rewiring kids' brains. Kind of agree with that. But And that when they stop using it, they have withdrawal symptoms. I do actually agree that that's probably true. But by and large, there's a lot of religious undertones, I think, in this entire situation that makes it less 
clearly just a porn addiction therapy and can pull kids into it that potentially are in a position like this kid, which I mean, obviously we don't know all the internal dynamics in his home, but it seems as though his sexuality was and repressing it was pretty much the center of this entire issue and the fact that he ended up at Star Guides Wilderness Therapy. Yeah, this is a fascinating piece. And they they layer in some statistics here. We've talked about this a little bit, but research shows that a majority of men, somewhere between 69 to 98%, uh, and a third of women, somewhere between 33 to 85%, depending on what study you're looking at, consume pornography. And a 2020 study in the Journal of Sex Research found that 80% of 18 to 19-year-olds had watched porn. Um, 2013 study in the same journal found that 68% of teens had accidentally seen porn in the past year. Accidentally. I really would love to dive into that data. Uh, 37% had looked at it on purpose. I think there's a truth. There's a truth in that. When I was a kid on the internet, I would ask, I, my first seeing anything explicit was completely not on purpose. Right, like it's it's easy to click something or a bad link, especially when you're a kid and you don't really know how that works. That actually happened to me and a lot of my friends. I think that's pretty standard. And then you're like, what the hell was that? Yeah. So this specific I'll well, I'll get into where I think where I agree with the issue at hand in general, but I think the specific camp, according to this report, is pretty Concerning. I, I mean, this is also looking at Reddit boards and stuff. So there's potential that some of these claims are fabricated, but apparently they put kids in orange t shirts and bust them off into the wilderness. Um, the kids are prone to violence in this program, and there are a ton of fist fights. Some of them have actual sex offenses in their past. And so putting them all together is potentially not the best idea. They're also allegedly, they put alarms on their sleeping bag so that if they try to run away, there's an alarm goes off and then a counselor will like sleep on a tarp with you to keep you there, which is bizarre and I think super prone to abuse potentially. I'm not sure how this is a solution to the problem itself. Um, I do understand that parents are put in a position sometimes with severe porn addiction where like you don't know what to do when you don't want to take your kids devices entirely or and sending them to the kind of detox might seem like a good idea but in the example of Cameron um, that did not work out for his family in the end because now he's living in Salt Lake City as in a community of leather fetishists not only do I think this is not solving the problem, I think this place is a problem. It's its own problem. It reminds yeah. me in a smaller way of the orphanage that we talked about in Vermont. Now, none of the allegations here are as this serious as the orphanage, but it seems like a place that is attracting and breeding masochistic behavior. And there's a lot of anecdotes in here throughout the piece about this. But it's also the parents, like this is a, I wouldn't even say good intentions because I'm not sure what's going on with these parents, but- but they're trying to solve a thing, an addiction, right? And they're messaging to their kids improperly, and then they're sending them to the wrong places. So there's one parent quoted in this recent article saying, you better be grateful because it costs a lot of money and you're really damaging our family. We will not have a son that is sexually deviant. Now, we can have a whole podcast about the 90 things wrong with you know those few sentences and that how that's not an effective way to get your kid to stop anything. But then they're sending them on to a place that has, seems to have a lot of violence and masochistic behavior. And one kid said, I saw more blood and fistfights and violence and threats and, you know, all kinds of crazy shit while I was there than in my entire lifetime 
combined. So they're basically saying, you better be grateful for this experience. And then they're sending them to these abusive places. Now, it doesn't take an expert to, to see what kind of stuff they're breeding in their kids, which is, oh, be grateful for this torturous experience that we're sending you through. And by the way, repress all these feelings you have right now. And we're just going to tell you they're deviant. We're not going to actually like, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to get off my soapbox, but obviously this is a recipe for creating some really big problems in your children. Yeah. And I think that the point is probably being used as the scapegoat in a lot of these instances, which, you know, like I've, re- I've reported on the, the porn addiction issue in the past, which I know is a controversial diagnosis in the first place, but it's one that I truly do believe in. Um, I have a lot of male friends who've had legitimate erectile dysfunction issues with living, breathing partners because they started obsessively watching porn while they were still developing and their brains, I do believe I wouldn't, I don't know the word we rewired sounds ascientific, but like, I do think like there's some legitimacy to the fact that these kids have programmed themselves to be aroused by something that's not real. That's completely divorced from the evolutionary setting in which boys would develop their sexuality for thousands and thousands of years. Um, 23% of men under 25 say that they've had erectile dysfunction with with real-life partners. That's something that's unprecedented. I do think this is a legitimate issue. I got a lot of flack for being a cultural conservative or, or trying to push an agenda for even bringing this up in the first place. And I think the problem is that there are instances in which the anti-porn sort of tirade gets tangled up with other religious issues or other social conservatism issues. And then it all gets packaged together in an instance like this. And then it seems as though there's no argument to be made in the first place that porn's a problem, which I just think is is untrue. And there are people who are not ideological in in the exception that they take to the porn industry and how it impacts some young people. Not all people. I'm not saying take it away from everyone. But there's a psychologist named Rob Weiss who I've interviewed in the past. I would recommend anyone who's interested in this um, to look into him. He's written for Psychology Today. And he has a treatment center in LA called Seeking Integrity, which not the woods, like totally nice facilities for adults who consent to being there, who are concerned for their own compulsive sexual behavior and who want to reset themselves and break the addiction cycle. And I do think that there are models for consenting adults to do such a thing. But this is obviously the cautionary tale of where the extreme of the anti-porn tirade can go. Yeah. And and I'll point to some, and this is a really good article in general. There's there's a lot of details about just how profitable I didn't I didn't realize how profitable like these types of organizations can really be. It's a lot of money in this. Uh, and so there's you know, there's this sort of subtext to this article that there's a lot of powerful people behind this. Uh, so you have to read it for yourselves, listeners. Um, it's definitely worth reading, especially if you're in Utah or Arizona or any place where uh, some of these organizations may be operating. All right, Ricky. Well, this was a good one. We hadn't had an old-fashioned debate on the last debate in a while. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Our voicemail is 321-200-0570. Feeling we'll be hearing from some folks. We have new episodes dropping. We have another one on Thursday, so we'll talk to you then. Thank you, everybody.